Good morning and welcome to our gathering. We will be continuing our study through the book of Ephesians today. Last Sunday we wrapped up chapter 2 and looked at how believers are citizens of God's covenant community and members of God's household and how all believers together form a holy temple which is God's dwelling place on earth. We were also encouraged to pursue peace, unity, and oneness with one another because God does not dwell in the midst of chaos. And if we are going to display His beauty and His attributes, His grace, His mercy, His peace to each other and to the world, we must exhibit those things. Now, at some point during or after his conversion on the road to Damascus, the Apostle Paul was given a mystery to proclaim to the world, a body of content that was delivered with new clarity to the Apostle by the Lord Jesus himself. This mystery was not some kind of secret knowledge that only an elite few could bear. Rather, It was given to Paul in order that he might deliver it to all Christians. Paul wrote about this mystery in chapter 3, and we are going to take a look at it this morning. Take your Bibles and turn right over to Ephesians chapter 3, and we will be looking at verses 1 through 6. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through through 6. I'd like to uh, read our text aloud and then pray and then we'll get to work. Ephesians chapter 3 verses 1 through 6. It says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. In verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Father, we come to you humbly now and ask that you would help uh, for us to forget about the cares of this world and uh, the distractions or responsibilities or things that we're engaged in, that you would help us to sort of set aside with those things now to focus on your word, to focus on the scripture, to focus on this sermon, to focus on how you're going to speak to us during this moment. Um, I pray, Lord, that you would make uh, the truth that we would not only hear it, but that we would understand it, that we would comprehend it by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would be changed by it, that we would become a different people, more like Christ, or maybe even saved for the first time. And we give you our attention now, we we do pray that you would help us and give us clarity uh, and and the ability to comprehend and to apply. And may you be glorified during this sermon, 
uh, during all that we do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's begin at verse 1. Verse 1. The coffee this morning is really delicious. I'm so appreciative of the hospitality team that puts these things together, that makes us fresh coffee every Sunday morning. Let's begin at verse 1. The text says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. The first thing we notice here is that Paul was about to make a big point. He's about to make a big point here. It's the first thing we see. Uh, That phrase, for this reason, is a leading statement. Uh, in, In... the sense that Paul is leading his readers at this point, or actual, actually then it would have been probably hearers, he is leading them to some kind of point. Or he's trying to capitalize on stuff that he's already said. It's, you know, we, we studied chapter 2 and we looked at all of these incredible things that he had said, and, and now we cross over into chapter 3 and he says, for this reason. So it's as if he's saying, I've been saying these things to you for this reason. Or it could very well mean that I'm about to say something to you, I'm writing to you now, I'm going to say what I'm going to say to you for this reason. And so that's what he means here. He's leading them to something or he's going to finalize a thought. And I believe it has more to do with leading because he's going to get into some subject matter pretty quick here. He was leading them towards something big, something important. And before, you know, actually tackling the subject matter, he, before he gets to his kind of primary point here, he reminds them of his current situation, of his current circumstance. When he wrote Ephesians, he was on house arrest in Rome and chained to a guard. He was imprisoned, basically. Uh, he, he had major <laughs> limited mobility. I mean, he was literally chained to a guard, a Roman soldier. He couldn't go very far. I mean, wherever he went, the soldier had to go with him. He, he was on house arrest, so he couldn't leave the house. Uh, so, you know, he was sort of imprisoned in his own residence at the place that he was staying at in Rome, and he had this guard that was kind of shackled to him, if you will. So he was in prison. But notice what he wrote He put a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Why didn't he write a prisoner of Rome? Right? It was the Romans that had incarcerated him. He was awaiting trial before Caesar for allegedly breaking some, you know, Roman laws. These were the allegations of the Jews back in Jerusalem who had him arrested. He had been in jail for several years and then transferred to Rome. I mean, that's his situation. He was, by all means, or technically speaking, a prisoner of Rome. It were the Romans. It was the Romans who had him incarcerated and who had him in this place. And so, but he, that's not what he writes. He writes a prisoner of Christ Jesus rather than a prisoner of Rome. And why is this? Perspective. Paul didn't think of himself as a prisoner of Rome. He actually believed that God is sovereign 
and that God had strategically placed him in Rome for a purpose. He knew that he had been imprisoned for Christ's saving purposes, which was, as he wrote here, on behalf of you Gentiles. So just as Christ was not crucified for his own behalf, Paul was not imprisoned for his own behalf, but on behalf of his Lord and on behalf of those he had been given a special calling to serve, the Ephesians, the Philippians, the Colossians, and Philemon. Those are the different groups and people that he wrote to while he was imprisoned at Rome. We call, the, we call Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, we call those his, we identify them as his prison letters. So he had this sort of, he believed that he had this sort of special calling while he was imprisoned at Rome to serve those churches and those groups of people, the ones in which he wrote to during that time. He had that kind of perspective that he was there by the decree of the sovereign God to serve a particular purpose on behalf of those people. It was perspective all the way. Something also to note here, there is uh, what I would call honorable imprisonment and dishonorable imprisonment. Honorable imprisonment has to do with being locked up for serving Christ or for being locked up for standing for the truth, the Scripture, the Bible. Uh, some examples would be Pastor Saeed Abedini. Uh, that's a great example. He is incarcerated uh, in an Iranian prison, which I can't imagine would be uh, any better than our prisons here, probably worse but he, he is currently locked up in Iran for preaching the gospel. Another example would be, and this one I think a multitude of people might disagree with, but I believe the Rowan County clerk Kim Davis uh, was also imprisoned for honorable reasons. Uh, you know, she defied the Supreme Court's unholy ruling on gay marriage and was thrown in jail for five years days or so. And I know a lot of people try to argue, well, you know, she was thrown in jail because she wasn't doing her job. Well, what is more important to a Christian, doing their job or doing the will of God? I think that most Christians would agree that doing the will of God. And, and I believe that's absolutely what she was doing. Not to mention that when she was elected as the county clerk, uh, gay marriage wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't legal in any sense. The Supreme Court hadn't made any kind of ruling like that. I believe she was elected several years earlier, so she obviously could not anticipate a change in the law, and I believe in many ways a change in the Constitution, an unrighteous one, an unlawful one. Uh, we must understand that she is defying a ruling by a godless court. And so, again, what's more important for people like us who claim Christ? It's to obey God always first. And if that means there's a conflict at work, then we err on the side of righteousness and suffer the consequence. So I do absolutely believe that she was uh, imprisoned for honorable reasons. And so uh, Pastor Saeed Abedini has been imprisoned for 
uh, for honorable reasons. And honorable imprisonment can actually, and it will actually, strengthen a person's faith and increase their boldness. Um, It can even, and this is kind of crazy because it doesn't match well with human thinking or human rationale, honorable imprisonment can actually lead to rejoicing. Peter and John, the apostles, were thrilled that they had been jailed for serving Christ. We see that over in Acts 5.41. Paul was in jail for honorable reasons, for preaching the gospel. I mean, he's, that's exactly where I'm headed here. He, he was locked up for honorable reasons. He wasn't locked up for stealing or breaking, you know, some kind of laws or anything like that. He was locked up for serving Christ on trumped up false charges made by the Jews. And, and I think that because he was locked up for righteous reasons, for honorable reasons, he didn't have guilt, he didn't have shame, He wasn't ashamed of being locked up. He wasn't ashamed of Christ. He hadn't broken any laws or done anything wrong. He was right with God. He was in jail for righteous reasons. So he didn't have shame, guilt. He wasn't frustrated with himself. He wasn't, you know, saying, woe is me. I'm a lawbreaker. I've done stupid things and I deserve it. That, That wasn't his disposition at all. I believe he had joy. I believe he had joy because he was locked up for honorable reasons. And... You know, he he was right with the Lord. Now, he could have pulled the woe is me card and complained, and he could have whined about injustice and these things. He could have blamed others. Well, you know, it was those darn Jews back in Jerusalem that, that caused this for me, and one day... You know, I'll see them in court again, and and I'll get my retribution. And, you know, I've lost how many years of my life, my freedom now, at their hands. He could have kind of played the blame game. He could have blamed the Jews back in Jerusalem. He could have blamed the Romans. Worse, he could have blamed God, you know, sort of shook his fist at the ceiling and said, what have you done here? This is wrong. I have, you know, I'm, I'm not here. I haven't broken any laws. I shouldn't be here. It's your fault, God. It's your fault, Jews in Jerusalem. It's your fault, Rome. He could have done that sort of thing. And you see that big time in this day and age where the slightest infraction and people just, you know, you spill hot coffee on yourself and you're suing McDonald's for a whole lot of cash. You know, Paul could have done that. He could have cried and whined and complained, but instead, what did he do? He pressed on, he continued to cheerfully serve Jesus. He didn't even consider his imprisonment to be at the hand of Rome. He, he, he was in jail because of Christ Jesus, because of the purposes of Christ Jesus. What a disposition, what an attitude, what a perspective, and he had all the joy in this situation. Pretty astonishing. It's amazing what perspective can do. When we enter a difficult situation or season, what goes through our minds? What travels across our lips? This stinks. This is terrible. This is hard. 
and we pray, don't we? We pray, God, get me out of this. Or God, what did I do to deserve this? God, why have you put me in this situation? This, this is what we do. This stinks. This is terrible. Or God, what's going on here? Get me out of this. But rather than complaining, and rather than exhibiting a defeatist attitude, we should be like the Apostle Paul. We should say to ourselves, what sort of special assignment has God given me here during this trial, during this persecution, during this illness, during this cancer, whatever it is that befalls upon us. That's what we should say. We shouldn't say, why me, God, get me out of this. We should say, what sort of special assignment has God given me during this? What's going on here? What does he want me to do? Who does God want me to serve during this? Who does God want me to testify about the gospel to during this? Who does God want me to display faithfulness and righteousness? Maybe God's grace to others. Who does He want me to do that in front of? I think that's the better response. That's the Christian thing to do. I know it's hard. I know it's tough. I know it's seemingly impossible. And sometimes these scenarios can be so difficult. We, we suffer such great loss in this life, the loss of loved ones and close friends and family members and, and, and these things. And I know it's, it's so dreadful at times and emotionally just, uh, just devastating. But our attitude should be that of Paul. And, and Paul's attitude was that of Christ Jesus. What can I do here to help someone? What can I learn during this. That's the right attitude. It's hard, but that's, that's what we need to focus on when we're going through tough things. Now look at verse 2. Verse 2. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, at first glance it would appear that Paul wasn't sure if his readers had heard about his calling, maybe heard about his ministry. That's kind of what it seems like. He says, assuming that you have heard. It, it's almost as if he's not sure if they know who he is and, and, and what he's, you know, why would this guy be writing this letter to us? That, that, his audience could be thinking that, I suppose. Maybe he's not sure. Maybe that's what he means here. But this is so unlikely because he is the one who planted the churches in Ephesus and in this region. He was the church planter. And this was a handful of years later, maybe five years later. It wasn't 15 or 20 or 30 years later where you have a whole new generation of believers in these churches or different groups. This was fairly recent, not long after he planted these churches. So I think it's unlikely that that is what he means. And, and also there's something else that kind of supports my angle on this. It's Acts 19.10. Speaking of Paul's ministry, Luke wrote, this continued, and he, this, he's, listen, he's talking about Paul's ministry and Paul going out and planting churches and preaching, you know, the gospel. He says, this continued for two years so that all the residents of, of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. 
It's as if what Luke is saying here is that Paul was so prolific in his preaching in travels that pretty much everyone in Asia had heard the gospel, had heard, you know, the word of the Lord, he says here, both Jews and Greeks, all of the inhabitants of Asia. And what Asia is he speaking of? He's speaking of Asia Minor. That's like southern Europe now today, I think, or maybe a little farther to the east, if you will, but that's, that's I mean, that's what Luke wrote. So I, I, I just can't imagine that these people had no idea who Paul was. Assuming that you have heard may have been Paul's way of saying, you must have heard, or you have heard, have you not, or surely you have heard. So I don't think that Paul was asking, I don't think you've ever heard of me and I'm about to say something to you. I think that he knew that they had heard and he's just, he uses this as some sort of phrase here. Now what was it that Paul was speaking of? What was it that he assumed that they had heard of that I believe he knew that they had heard of? It says, this is what he wrote, the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. God had entrusted Paul with something of immensely high value. He had made him a steward, which is one who manages and even dispenses something for God. The high value item God had entrusted to him was grace. That's what he puts here, God's grace. And, and I think that more appropriately what he means here is the gospel of grace the gospel of grace. Paul told the Ephesians that this grace, right, that God's grace was given to him for their sake. He says it right there, given to me for you. So let's try to paraphrase verse 2, and I think this is pretty accurate. I think this is what he said. Surely you have heard of how God made me a steward of of the gospel of grace for you. Now, what was Paul attempting to do here through this statement? What was he trying to accomplish by making this statement? I believe he was working to establish his authority so that his readers or hearers would take what he wrote here seriously. In a way, what Paul has said here is that I am your apostle. I am your representative. Okay? And this is what he means because he told them that God had given him grace to give to them. And as we continue in in the verses, we'll see that it's grace that he had been given to give to them in the form of revelation, in the form of truth. Now, I can tell you, if they understood these things about him, that he was their apostle, that he was their steward of God's grace, that he was the the holder of that precious gift of grace for them or that revelation. If they thought of him as, this is the main guy, this is our spokesperson, this is our representative. If they thought of him in those terms, it is very likely that they would take his words seriously, that they would trust what he's saying, that they would receive what he's saying. I think that's what he's after here. 
Now, do we realize that as believers, we have also been entrusted with God's grace in the form of the gospel? That we are also His stewards. And when I say this, I am speaking of all Christians, all believers. That we are His stewards. Every Christian is a steward of God. God has entrusted the gospel to us. And that God expects us to dispense His grace to others in a sense. He expects us to preach and gossip, which means just talk about in regular conversation. He expects us to preach and talk in regular conversation, gossip the gospel, and make disciples here and beyond. But that's His expectation. We're all stewards of His grace in terms of the gospel. We're all supposed to proclaim the gospel, beginning here and going out. But we tend to look at guys like Paul and say, well, that was God's calling on his life, but not on mine. You know, the truth is, and this is the reality of it, Paul believed the Great Commission. He believed that he was obligated to fulfill it. He believed that the Great Commission, you know, to preach the gospel in every nation and to make disciples in every nation, you know, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that Christ commanded. That's the Great Commission. Paul believed that that Great Commission was his commission, that it was his responsibility to fulfill it. He believed that. That's why we see him doing so much service and work for the Lord and accomplishing so much for the sake of the kingdom. The truth is, the Great Commission is every believer's commission. And we are all obligated to fulfill it. It's not an option. We're commanded to do it. And I'll tell you, this is an encouragement to you. You don't have to be like Paul and travel to Macedonia. I don't even know if it's called that anymore. That's what it was back in his day. You don't have to be like Paul and travel to Macedonia or some other place to do it. Not everyone is, is every believer. Every believer is called to fulfill the Great Commission, but not every believer is called to do that in some faraway land. God sends believers here he sends believers over there he sends believers right here and over there and whatever and he just moves them all over the place so not all of us are to go into some particular country and and proclaim the gospel although i think it's god's desire that you know that we answer his call and do that to some degree but i don't think that you know i i know that i'm called and commissioned to proclaim the gospel right here in Modesto. I wouldn't be a church planter. I wouldn't be a pastor here if I didn't believe that that was my part in the Great Commission. And maybe God will add to that later on and He'll send me somewhere else. I want to be open to the Spirit's leading. You see, we don't, we look at Paul and we say, well, that could never be me. And then we just forfeit the whole thing and throw the baby out with the bathwater. And it's like, no, 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 no. You still are obligated to fulfill the Great Commission. And you can do that right here. You don't have to go to Macedonia. You don't have to go to Asia. You don't have to go to China. In fact, the Scripture says that we're to begin right here where we're at. 
You can fulfill the Great Commission. You can share the gospel with your family. And I'd say that's primary. The first place that you're a missionary is in your own home, with your own family, with your own spouse, with your own you know, siblings, if you live at home still with your folks, with your own children, with your own grandparents or parents, or whoever it is. You can share the gospel. You can fulfill the Great Commission right there at home with your family or at work with your coworkers or, you know, at school with your fellow students or at your, your, you know, your job with your patients if you're a nurse. And we have nurse, nurses here that do that pretty regularly. They're sharing the gospel all the time. You can share the gospel. You can fulfill the Great Commission with your neighbors. You can do a lot of these things right here in your community. And I believe that's the starting point. So we shouldn't look at Paul's example and say, well, that's not for me. That's not what he's called me to do. And then we just sit on grace like it's some kind of egg. We are stewards and we have been entrusted with the truth, with this divine revelation in Scripture, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're commissioned and commanded to go out and take it out into the world and begin right here and move out from there. You could even be a leader in our kids' ministry and or a WANA program for children and share the gospel right there with munchkins. I mean, there are a, a dozens and dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of ways that you can do this right here and abroad. The point is, do something. Don't be a bad steward of your time, talent, and treasure. Utilize those things for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we're to do. We can follow Paul's example. Now look at verse 3. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. Through grace, Paul received a special direct revelation from the Lord Jesus for the Ephesians and for all Gentile believers. The revelation he received was a kind of decoding of a particular mystery that pertained to Christ, the Messiah, God's covenant community, and Gentiles. As I said earlier, he may have received it while on the Damascus Road, right after or during his conversion. He spoke of this revelation that he received or this decoding of this mystery. He spoke of it in Galatians chapter 1 verses 11 to 12 and that's why I had Carol read that during our scripture reading segment this morning. Okay, so now look over at verse 4. Verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. You see, it was Paul's intention not simply to declare the mystery, which he's going to do shortly. It wasn't his intention just to declare it in a couple of verses here. It was his intention to explain and clarify it, to define it. When Ephesian believers and every subsequent believer would read his explanations, Paul's hope was that they would come to understand his god given insight into this mystery, which he calls the mystery of Christ. You know, Paul reminds me of a good parent right here. A good parent wants his or her child or children to perceive, to understand their insights, 
their instruction, their wisdom, their teaching, their training. A good parent wants his or her child to perceive or understand the truth, the gospel. In fact, for Christian parents, that's like the number one thing when it comes to parenting their kids. They want their kids to know Jesus. They want their kids to know the gospel. They want their kids to know the Bible, to know the scripture. And Paul, what we see in this example here in this text is that he was like a good parent that wished and desired for this perception for these Christians. He, he was like a good parent. He really did care for believers as a parent cares for their child. He instructed believers like a parent at times. He prayed for, you know, these believers as a parent praise for their children, praying for their understanding in these things. Paul even referred to his young protege, Timothy, who may have been at Ephesus serving as an under-shepherd or pastor in training or something, and I believe he was there when this letter came to Ephesus. He even referred to Timothy, young Timothy, as his true child in the faith. The church is the family of God. The older saints are to be like parents or even grandparents who care for the younger saints. And the younger saints are to be like submissive children who respect and honor the older saints who are like their parents. This is the way it is to be. You know, it's really amazing how the Scripture illustrates the church and then the Scripture illustrates the family. They look the same. You have parents, the older saints, and you have children, the newer believers. You know, you even have baby believers who are on the, you know, the new spiritual milk. I mean, really, God does this very purposefully in relating the church to a family. In fact, He relates the church to a marriage you know that the church we all together all believers are the bride and that's not a weird thing for us masculine guys we are the bride and christ is the bridegroom there's a lot of family and marriage parallel in scripture the church and family they're kind of the same thing in a way they function the same way in fact i'm just thinking about it right now and i think it's in either titus or uh, maybe First Timothy, but when we look at the qualifications of an elder, the very first thing that they must be able to do is manage their own household well. They have to be a good steward of their own household. They treat their wife with dignity and respect, and they love her sacrificially. They have believing children who are respectful and you know honoring to to other people and, and other believers in these things. I mean, they have to manage their household well. And, and the scripture it even warns there that if they can't manage their own household well, how are they going to manage the household of God, the church, well? We are, as believers, the family of God. And we must treat each other with respect and dignity and love and mercy and grace and forgiveness. The things that we desire in our own families at home we must exhibit here 
And Paul reminds me of that here as he cares for these Ephesian believers that he, he doesn't want to just declare truth to them. He wants them to perceive and understand and apply these things because their joy is at stake here. Their maturity is at stake. Their protection from false teachers is at stake here. There's a lot at stake here. Now look at verse 5 which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Paul told them that the mystery he was about to unfold for them had not been understood by previous generations, which means there's a special treat coming in these next few lines. This must have whet their appetite, must have got them, oh, he's going to tell us something that others did not understand. Those who came before us did not understand these things. Sons of men right here in the text refers to mankind in general, not just to God's chosen people, Israel. Before the church age, no person, not even the greatest of God's prophets, had anything but a glimpse of what Paul is about to disclose. The Old Testament truths that relate to this mystery, the one in focus here, can only be understood clearly in light of New Testament revelation. In other words, you can't understand what, you know, this thing was kind of foretold in the Old Testament, only types and shadows, bits and pieces, and you can't fully understand it with an Old Testament-only perspective or understanding. You have to have the New Testament, the new revelation here, to be able to get this thing. Now, speaking of the Old Testament saints, kings, and prophets, the author of Hebrews wrote, and all these though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us. The Old Testament saints, kings, and prophets did not receive what? It says what was promised. Okay, what was it that was promised in the Old Testament? Christ, the Messiah, and the mystery of Christ, and the rest of God's revelation, the New Testament, all of these things were forecasted or foretold in the Old Testament. The Old Testament believers, however, had mere types and shadows that pointed to Messiah and these other incredible things. At best, that's all they had were little glimpses of these things. They had partial knowledge of them, little pictures of them, you know, pixels but they didn't have the full image or full understanding. Now, to whom were these things that had been hidden, right? These hidden things, the things that were hidden from the Old Testament saints, kings and prophets, to whom were they revealed to? Paul wrote, to his holy apostles and prophets. These men were the instruments of writing Scripture, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, describes their unique function, their role, their position, their responsibility. It says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. 
The we in this text is the apostles and prophets. The word of life in this text is Christ and the New Testament, which speaks about Christ, who is what? The way and the truth and the life. And the word of life is, it, it, it speaks about, it has to do with the mystery of Christ, all of these things. The apostles and prophets were given this revelation and tasked with writing it down. And typically when we think about who authored the New Testament, the first group of people or persons that come to mind are the apostles. And we think of Matthew and and John and Peter and Paul, etc. Right? That's who we think of. We, We think of the apostles. They were the guys who wrote Scripture. They were the ones whom God used and inspired to write down His revelation in these things. Some would even tell you, I would think, that it was only the apostles that could do it. Only an apostle could do these things. You know, they were the ones that had this specific calling and purpose and, and anointing to do this, but it's, it's not true. The apostles were not the only ones to record the mystery of Christ, the revelation, these things. There were also prophets, not just apostles, but prophets, just as Paul wrote here. He put apostles and prophets. Examples. Who wrote the book of James? An apostle? No. James wrote it, and he was a pastor and a prophet. Who wrote the book of Jude? An apostle? No. Jude wrote it, and he was a prophet. Who wrote the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts? An apostle? No. Luke wrote both of them, and he was a doctor, historian, and obviously a prophet. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? For a long time, the church believed it was Paul, but that opinion changed not too long ago. And some say it was Barnabas, and they're is a little bit of evidence out there to support that because the book of Hebrews appears to be Pauline or written by Paul, but there are some variances and things in it that make it sound like it's not Paul. And so some think that it was Barnabas because he was Paul's closest companion for many years. There's a little evidence to support that. If it was Barnabas, the question is, was he an apostle? No, he wasn't an apostle. He was, an, he was a, a missionary, he was a church planter, and maybe even a prophet. So Paul is correct here. Apostles and prophets received divine revelation, the New Testament, which had been hidden from the sons of men. Apostles and prophets were the ones who wrote the New Testament, not just apostles, not just prophets. Both types wrote the Scripture inspired by God. Notice how Paul referred to them as holy apostles and prophets this is the only place in the new testament where this designation is used in relation to the apostles and prophets the idea here is that these men were set apart for such revelation they were set apart for um, such revelation they were fit to record to write down such revelation and they were authentic so these were holy apostles and prophets They were set apart for this particular task, this writing down of God's, you know, revelation, the New Testament, decoding 
the mystery of Christ in these things. Notice the last three words right there. The last three words. It says, by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the agent who delivered the revelation of God to these men. The revelation of God, the New Testament, the mystery of Christ, all of these things came to these men by and through the Holy Spirit. Spiritual truth, which is exactly what we're talking about, is always delivered by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is even referred to as the Spirit of truth in John chapter 16, verse 13. Now, the Holy Spirit is the one who delivers and brings it. It comes through Him, but that's not all that He does. He is also the one who grants understanding. You know, the giving of understanding is also the work of the Holy Spirit. He not only brings the truth to us, but He enables us to understand and believe it. And that happens through what we call the doctrine of illumination. So it's the Spirit's unique role to bring the truth and to make it understandable, to illuminate our minds and hearts. Now look at the last verse with me, verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is where Paul shared this is what he's been leading to right this is where paul shared his insight into the mystery of christ this is where he defined what it is the mystery of christ is that gentiles and what a gentile is in case you're unaware is someone who's not jewish a gentile is a non-jew right so the mystery of christ is that gentiles non-jews are three things he puts here what are they number one fellow heirs number two members of the same body and number three partakers of the promise in christ jesus isn't this what paul has been saying and writing about all along in chapters one and chapters two of ephesians when he wrote about the ephesians spiritual blessings in chapter one and about their blood-bought citizenship, closeness to God, and membership in God's household in chapter 2, he was describing the mystery of Christ. I was unaware of this as we studied that. I knew he was describing their blessings and their position with God and all these things, and I think it's spectacular, but I didn't realize he was also breaking down the mystery of Christ for them. This is what he's been talking about all along. The mystery of Christ is that Gentiles would be engrafted into God's covenant community and made members of God's household and made partakers of Israel's blessings. The mystery of Christ is that people from every tribe and tongue, Jew and Gentile, would be saved and joined together in Christ to form a holy temple and dwelling place for God on earth. That is the mystery of Christ which was hidden in the Old Testament, but was revealed to the holy apostles and prophets and recorded in the New Testament. Now, we all need to be aware of something here. We need to be aware of something that's important. 
Paul was not referring to the salvation of Gentiles here. Gentile salvation was not a mystery in the Old Testament. God revealed to people like Abraham and Moses that his plan of salvation was global, that it included Gentiles. And there are many examples of Gentiles being included in the Old Testament. Rahab was a Gentile prostitute who got saved. God's grace even applies to the prostitute. It's wonderful. Ruth was a Moabitess. She wasn't a Jew. She was a Moabitess. She was from the land of Moab. And she got saved. The Ninevites were pagans. I believe they were Assyrians. They were Assyrian people who lived outside of the covenant community. They were total pagans. They worshipped false gods. And yet, someone (laughs) went and preached the gospel to them, and many of them got saved. That was Jonah. Isaiah prophesied about Gentile salvation in the Old Testament. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Isaiah 49, 6. So we must understand that Gentile salvation was not a mystery in the Old Testament, so that is not what Paul was referring to here. Paul was referring to a facet of salvation which was hidden and mysterious and that facet has to do with the joining together of jews and gentiles in christ it has to do with gentiles being made fellow heirs and members of the same body and partakers of the promise in christ It has to do with Gentiles sharing in Israel's blessings. It has to do with the church. The word church doesn't even appear in the Old Testament. The Old Testament saints, kings, and prophets had no idea. If you said to King David, hey, have you heard of the church? He'd say, what is a church? He would not know what a church is or the church of Christ. He'd have no idea. He'd be familiar with Christ, but he wouldn't be familiar with the church. No one in the Old Testament had these things figured out. No one except the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, and Jehovah. Now look at the last three words of verse 6. How do we become an heir? How do we become a member of the same body? How do we become a partaker of the promise in Christ Jesus. How do we receive all the spiritual blessings of chapter 1, verses 3 to 14? How do we come close to God? How do we become citizens of true Israel? How do we become members of God's household? How do we become common stones in God's holy temple and dwelling place on earth? How do we become part of the church? What does it say? Through the gospel. The gospel is the way in. The gospel is the only way in. And what is the gospel? The gospel is the life, the death, and the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ lived a perfect, righteous life 
for you. What I mean by that is that we are all guilty of breaking God's commandments. We've all lied. We've all dishonored our parents. I'm talking about just the big ten, the ten commandments. And Anyone post-puberty has committed um, adultery because you've lusted after some other person in a sexual manner. I mean, let's just face it. That's reality. We've all done that. If you're If you've gone through puberty, you've struggled with that before. You've thought things about a guy or a gal. We've all committed adultery in our minds. We're all lawbreakers. And because of that, we're separated from God. We're sinners. We we have no place in His kingdom, no place in His community. We, We can't even approach Him. We can't even have a relationship with Him because of that. Because we're lawbreakers. We need righteousness. We need to be made right with God before we can have anything with Him. And the good news about the gospel is that Jesus Christ never broke any of God's laws. He obeyed them perfectly and thus earned a righteousness for people like you and I. That we could have a relationship with God and know God and be made right with God. That's the good news of the gospel right there, that Christ lived a perfect righteous life he earned righteousness for you he did for you what you could never do for yourself the gospel is the good news also that jesus christ died on a cross in your place for your sins you see that should have been each of us on calvary on that day we all deserve the death penalty for our sin should have been us on that cross because of our sin but jesus went to the cross and while he was on the cross all of our sin was placed upon him and he died right there bled and died right there in our place as a substitute we call it substitutionary atonement he died in your place He earned a righteousness for you that you can never earn on your own and he died the death that you should have died and he paid your sin debt. In fact, he even absorbed the full blast of God's wrath against sin. He absorbed it right in his own body. He suffered in our place. It's incredible. The good news is that he earned the righteousness for us and then he died on the cross in our place. He took our sin upon his body. He removed our sin. He's made us righteous with his own righteousness. Takes our sin. There's actually a thing called the great exchange. He takes our sin from us and applies it to his body and he takes his righteousness from his own body and he applies it to us. The good news is also that Jesus Christ was buried in a tomb, and that's where he settled our account with God. And the good news is also that Jesus Christ rose from that tomb three days later, conquering sin, conquering Satan, conquering death, and conquering hell. For you. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. It's through that gospel that we become heirs and members and partakers and we receive all of the blessings. I'd like to say it's this. It's through the finished 
work of Jesus Christ. In fact, I'll take it further, it's through the person and finished work of Jesus Christ that we can become an heir, that we can become a member, that we can become a partaker. But it's more than that. What must we do with this gospel? You see, there's something that we must do with it. Hear it? Absolutely, but it's more than mere hearing. We must hear it and by grace believe it. We are saved by grace through faith. By grace through faith, we become an heir, we become a member, we become partakers of the promises that are in Christ Jesus. And, and, and the, what are the promises that are in Christ Jesus? Every promise Christ Jesus made to the church, every promise Christ Jesus made to Israel, those are our promises. It's only through the gospel that we get to receive any of that. How do you know if God has worked the miracle of His grace in your heart? How do you know if, if, if the gospel has changed who you are? How do you know if you believe? How do you know any of this stuff? How do you know if God's worked this miracle in your heart? How do you know if you're a true believer and you're an heir and, and you're a recipient and member in these things? How do you know? Well, do you have the Holy Spirit? Do you love the Godhead? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? Do you love the church? And this is a interesting thing in our day and age where you have so many people who profess christ they love god they love the godhead they claim to have the holy spirit and all this stuff and yet they don't act like they love the church because they're rarely come together with the church in a corporate setting to worship god and to experience fellowship and the means of grace and to enjoy all that takes place here they think that they can be saved and have almost nothing to do with church. They'd rather go to work and make extra money. They'd rather go to parties. They'd rather stay up all night, Saturday night, drinking and feeling bad in the morning and not coming. They'd rather just skip out and do their own thing. And I'm, I, what I want to do is I want to warn you here, and I want to encourage you at the same time, that this is not biblical to have this kind of attitude and behavior with the church. When we look at the book of Acts, we don't see people getting saved and then going back to business as usual or going to do whatever it is that they want to do. We see 5,000 people get saved and added to the church. And all of them, we look at Acts 2, 42 to 47, all of them were committed to the apostles' preaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. That's communion. They were committed to the, um, also dining and eating together and meeting each other's needs and all these things. You, you, in the in the book of Acts, you don't see renegade rogue Christians all over doing that. You see community. You see family. You see people together. You see people assembling in Solomon's portico. And so I don't know where this toxic idea came in that I can have Christ and not have his church. Yeah, I don't agree with a lot of Catholic theology, but I can kind of understand when they say, Things like, if you are not a member of the Catholic Church and, and regularly involved in it, you're not saved. You can't be saved. They say this. 
They actually tie church attendance to salvation. I would disagree with them on that point. But I can kind of understand where they came up with this because for you know a couple thousand years they've seen people come and go and claim Christ and all this. Most of you are so committed and here so regularly and, and yet there are some even in this congregation that just don't take this seriously and they withdraw and I, don't, I can't get my mind around it. Can we miss our people when they're not here? You know, we prayed the other day Not that this church would expand by leaps and bounds, that we would have greater reach in the community and more people coming in through the front doors and sticking and all that. You know what we prayed for the other day? We prayed that we'd actually be able to worship with our entire church family one of these Sundays, that God would bring all of our people together here at once. It'd be really neat to see all of our people together experiencing fellowship and the means of grace together and the love and companionship. Oh, that's what we've been praying for. Do you love the church? And and that translates as, are you involved and around? (laughs) Are you serving? Are you loving each other? Are you encouraging? Are you attending the services and growing in grace together? Do you love the Bible? This is another sign. Do you love the Bible This is another thing today. I love Jesus and I read my Bible twice a year. Um, So you don't want to read his word which speaks about him and he actually speaks through that scripture to you. So you don't want to hear about, you don't want to hear from Christ. Can't imagine if you treated your spouse that way. I love my wife, but I only interact with her twice a year. I don't think your marriage would last. Do you love the Bible? Do you read it? When you read it, do you love it? Does it challenge you? Do you think it's like one of the great gifts of God and one of the great presents that you could ever receive? I, I feel that way about my Bible. I love my Bible. I love it. Sometimes I just look at my Bible and I just, I, it's almost like I'm looking at my spouse. I'm looking at Rachel, whom I love dearly. And I look at my Bible and just this joy and this elation and this love wells up because I know it's God's word. I love it. Do you love your Bible? Do you despise sin, especially your own? And we tend to hate everyone else's sin around us. Look at these politicians and look at these guys over here, these believers, and look at ISIS and look at all these people. I hate the sin and I hate all that. And we just don't seem to have too much trouble with our own sin. Well, for a true Christian, the, the first sin that is despised and hated is your own. And then you can move out to others and pray for them and encourage them and give them the gospel. Do you hate evil? There's so much evil happening in the world today. It's just horrible. A man was just a few weeks ago on our way to church. Everything was fine at this little car wash by our house. And on the way back, it was all taped off. Somebody got stabbed to death. Fortunately, they arrested the guy. That's evil. It's just horrible. Do you hate evil? Do you despise evil? Or do you rejoice with it and love it and practice it and engage it? I'm not saying you stab people, but... Do you love evil? That's a problem. Have you turned your back on the world? Back in Ephesians chapter 2, at the very beginning of it, it talks about how unbelievers follow the course of this world and they follow the devil who is the prince of the power of the air. The devil is their Pied Piper. They go around and do his bidding all the time, even if they don't recognize it or don't even believe he exists. They serve the devil. They serve evil. They serve this world. And what is the ideology of the world? It is God does not exist. Have you turned your back on that ideology and the devil? Do you fight and war, battle 
against your flesh, against temptation, and against the devil? Because I tell you what, that's one of the defining marks of salvation right there. If you have true saving grace, you are going to be actively at war with your own flesh, fighting temptation, fighting the devil. I think that Christianity could be defined as spiritual warfare. And it's not, I had such tremendous spiritual warfare the other night, and I haven't experienced it for six months. Spiritual warfare is happening at all times, even in tempting moments where you're on a computer and, and you know, you're a guy and you're on a computer or a gal, I suppose, you're on a computer and there's an image and you want to click on that site and all of that and go to that and look at those things and, and entertain those thoughts and fuel and feed your flesh. And what are you doing? You're engaging in temptation. Now you're sinning and now you're, you know, committing sin and these sorts of things. You know what? The, you, you fight that stuff. The image comes up. You, you turn away from it. You click off of it. You get out of there. Are you actively engaged in spiritual warfare in the form of fighting your flesh and its desires and passions against temptation against the devil? Do you, on a day-to-day basis, bear your own cross? Meaning, are you dying to yourself? Are you being conformed to the image of Christ? Are you being made like Him? Because there is a progression in the Christian faith. You start out kind of a spiritual baby, and you kind of grow and mature, and you get off the milk, and you get on the meat, and all the time it's called sanctification the whole time you're becoming more and more like jesus christ do you have the fruits of the spirit love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control all of these things are signs of saving grace do you have them now what might we take away from this text i'm going to close and wrap it up I suppose we could say, what might we not take away from it? There's plenty to take away from it so far. But I have something in particular. I think the most important thing we can walk away with is an understanding of how privileged we are as believers today. How we are even more privileged than the Old Testament saints were. Some of the greatest men and women of faith who ever lived, like Abraham, Moses, Joseph, Ruth, Hannah, King David, Daniel, and Esther, they were not as privileged as you and I. They were all waiting for God's promises to come true. And yet, not one of them got to see these things come to pass during their lives. Not one. They didn't get to see Messiah, nor were they able to get their hands on the rest of God's revelation. They didn't know about the church, had no concept of it. They had no clue as to how far God had planned to go with Gentiles, making them fellow heirs, members, and partakers. That was mysterious. They had no clue about that. All of these things were a mystery to them. And at best, they were given types and shadows, mere glimpses of Christ the Messiah, mere glimpses of of these other amazing things. But we, on the other hand, have been given the rest of God's revelation, the New Testament, and in it we discover that the mystery of Christ has been decoded and revealed. What was hidden from the Old Testament saints has been made known to us. So who is more privileged, them or us? us but it's even more than that 
much more. The mystery of Christ and the revelation here actually speak of us. The mystery of Christ, which was hidden from the sons of men and revealed to the holy apostles and prophets and then recorded in the New Testament, has to do with you and your salvation and your spiritual blessings and your sonship. You see, we are more than privileged beholders of the mystery. In Christ, we are the mystery itself. We are Gentile believers. The mystery that was given glimpses of way back when in the Old Testament, it points to us, to you and I. It speaks of us. So just let that sink in for a moment. I want to encourage each of us not to take these things for granted. As the Lord's people, we are a privileged people. And to whom much is given, much is required. May we become good stewards of God's grace, like the Apostle Paul, and share God's revelation the mystery of Christ, the gospel with those around us. Amen.